Welcome to Liquid Church Audio. The message you're about to enjoy was originally delivered at Liquid by Pastor Tim Lucas. Liquidchurch.com, living water for a thirsty generation. Now, we're live on the web. Okay, let's enter the wardrobe together. By way of background, how many of you have actually read The Lion, The Witch, and The Wardrobe at least once uh, in your life? Okay, it's about 50, 50%. How many have seen the recent movie released this past weekend? Okay, many more folks are visually literate, I see. Okay, that's good. Um, I remember first encountering the story as a boy of 9 or 10 and just being absolutely enchanted by the tale. I actually read it again just this last week in preparation for the series, and it was as fresh and charming. It's, it's actually quite simple, very beautiful tale that grabs your imagination and just kind of stirs something in your heart. It's written, of course, by C.S. Lewis. Anyone know what the C.S. stands for? Clive Staples. Ooh, an advanced class. A brilliant British scholar. He was an, a professor at Oxford, taught literature at Magdalene College, and Lewis actually spent life through his formative years growing up as an atheist. But he rose to become one of the most prominent Christian apologists of the 20th century. He was a contemporary and close friend of another uh, fantasy author, anyone know? J.R.R. Tolkien, yeah, of Lord of the Rings fame. And with the recent film adaptation of Narnia, C.S. Lewis's own celebrity has kind of hit new levels. With uh, cover stories uh, on the front page of uh, USA Today, he made uh, this past month, a feature story on Lewis's work, and uh, the cover of Christianity Today declaring him C.S. Lewis superstar. Um, So it was actually in the 1940s, right as World War II was breaking out and the world was teetering on the brink of collapse that Lewis rose to fame. With the Nazis rampaging across uh, Europe, Lewis began a series of actually four 15-minute radio talks on the BBC about the foundations of the Christian faith. And um, the clarity and the insight with which he spoke made him instantly connect with a world that was confused and engulfed by darkness all around them. And with the exception of Winston Churchill, Lewis became the most recognizable voice in Britain during the World War II years. Those early radio broadcasts formed the basis for Lewis's masterwork of Christian apologetics, Mere Christianity. Anyone read that? Uh, Screw Tape Letters was an instant success, and by 1947, the popularity of Lewis's work in both the UK and the States was so great that it catapulted him to the cover of Time magazine in December 1947. And it's interesting because even the jaded journalists and non-Christian editors of Time, they seemed awed by Lewis's writing gifts. The reviewer of The Great Divorce wrote, men who can write readable books about religion are almost as rare as saints. One such rarity is the Oxford Don, Clive Staples Lewis. The cover article of Time actually noted, with erudition, great humor and skill, Lewis is writing about religion for a generation of religion-hungry readers brought up on a steady diet of scientific jargon and Freudian cliches. His fame actually grew in evangelical circles for his compelling, very intellectual defenses of the Christian faith. And he remains a kind of literary uh, saint in evangelical circles to this day. Many of you know I graduated from uh, Wheaton College out in Chicago. And at Wheaton, the name C.S. Lewis held like special like significance. Um, The Marion E. Wade Center there actually is the the holder of many of Lewis's original papers and documents from his, his estate. 
including the original family wardrobe. It was amazing. I got to see this is kind of a neat thing. The original family wardrobe thought to have inspired Lewis's production of his most famous children's story. And you wouldn't think Lewis would be so revered by traditional evangelicals. I mean, he smoked cigarettes and a pipe, and he regularly visited pubs to drink beer with friends. Uh, but he was. Uh, and I was an English major, and at Wheaton, it was like, Lewis was like the literary pope of Christianity. We had to write ridiculous amounts of papers in the English program at Wheaton. And the joke was that if you included a quote by C.S. Lewis in your conclusion, you were guaranteed never to get less than a B+. When all else failed, if you wrote mishmash, just quote Lewis. <laughs> and you know what? It's like my, my purchase of a, uh, a C.S. Lewis anthology was like one of the best things I ever bought in my university career. Um, it might seem odd that a man who rose to such international celebrity status and was regarded by Christians and atheists alike as one of the most formidable minds of the 20th century would turn, in his later years, to writing children's books. <laughs> But that is just what Lewis did, turning out one volume of the Chronicles of Narnia from 1950 to 1956. And you have to ask a question, why, why would an intellectual heavyweight like Lewis choose to busy himself with fairy tales? I mean, Lewis himself never even had children. Really, the only brush the professor did have was when he housed several evacuated children during World War II from bombed-out London. Sound familiar? Lewis, who died in 1963, gave the clearest explanation of why he wrote the Narnia series in an essay he titled, Sometimes Fairy Stories May Say Best What's to Be Said. He said, I thought I saw how stories of this kind could steal past certain inhibitions which had paralyzed much of my own religion in childhood. Why did one find it so hard to feel as one was told one ought to feel about God or about the sufferings of Christ? I thought the chief reason was that one was told one ought to. <laughs> An obligation to feel can freeze feelings, and reverence itself did harm. The whole subject was associated with lowered voices, almost as if it were something medical. But supposing that by casting all these things into an imaginary world, stripping them of their stained glass and Sunday school associations, one could make for the, them for the first time appear in their real potency. Could one not thus steal past those watchful dragons? I thought one could. And I, for one, am certainly the better for Lewis's daring attempt to bycat past the kind of cynical and duty-bound feelings that sometimes handicap my adult mind. And just let my imagination experience the greatest story of all behind the story of Narnia. And so that's what we're going to do tonight. Enter the wardrobe of faith and just see what lurks underneath the fanciful spell that Lewis weaves. Since The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe was released uh, in, in 1950, the series of seven Narnia books is approaching $100 million in sales. That's not $100 million, that's 100 units. <laughs> Certainly the books draw much of their power based on the epic Christian themes like sacrifice, betrayal, forgiveness, and redemptive love. But Lewis got a lot of letters from children through the years. And perhaps his note to a fifth grade class in Maryland best summarizes the catalyst behind Narnia. After he notes that the story is not a straight allegory, he wrote, I said, let us suppose that there were a land like Narnia, and that the Son of God, as he became a man in our world, became a lion there. And then imagine what would happen. What would happen, Lewis asked, if Jesus had come to a world of talking animals and become one of them? What might we learn from that? 
Let's pray before we enter the wardrobe together, okay? Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the life of C.S. Lewis, for the gift of his intellect, Lord, and his writing abilities, and more than anything, Father, because it opens up a chance for us to understand your son even better. Lord, to understand the story that we live in, the, the greatest story ever told, to understand the Bible, Father. And I pray that tonight you would use your Holy Spirit and, and send him in a way that would open up our minds and hearts so we would go away enlarged, Father. Encouraged because we see Jesus in a new way. Do that through the power of your Spirit and your word. In your name, amen. All right. Um, who is Aslan, right? I mean, if you've read the book or seen the movie... You know that on the literal level, he is the beautiful and fierce lion at the heart of the story. But not everyone who's seen Aslan picks up on who he really is. Now, this tale picks off, kicks off kind of when four English children, right? Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy. They're staying at a professor's country home outside London during the Blitz of London in World War II. And they accidentally stumble into this parallel world, into the enchanted kingdom of Narnia, they discover this portal kind of an, into an alternate reality through the back of this magic wardrobe. As Susan says, impossible. And standing by the lamppost under the falling snow, they find out quickly, though, that Narnia isn't all beautiful. It actually, while beautiful and caked in the snow, it's a land that is in bondage. It's held captive under the spell of the evil white witch. And because of her power, they found out it is, quote, always winter and never Christmas. So we learned first that Narnia is actually a lot like the East Coast. Always is kind of winter and cold. And... But I'm actually not joking, for there is a similarity with our world described in Scripture by the Apostle Paul in Romans 8. He describes our present world this way. Creation waits in eager expectation in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. Narnia is under a death spell. The creation is groaning, the Pevensey children discover. And they immediately think that maybe Narnia isn't such an enchanted place after all. <laughs> In many ways, it's a world at war, like the one they just left, full of death, decay, and destruction, just like the one they came from. Is there any hope? Who or how is Narnia to be liberated from the bondage of the white witch, the source of evil personified? Well, right away the children happen upon this talking beaver who says he's been instructed to lead them to a place called the Stone Table to meet a creature named Aslan, right? Or there's something about this Aslan because the name is like Aslan. The majestic name immediately stirs something in the hearts of the children, Lewis wrote um, in chapter 7, and I'll be kind of referencing the book versus the movie. Uh, check this out in chapter 7. He says, and now a very curious thing happened. None of the children knew who Aslan was any more than you do. But the moment the beaver had spoken these words, everyone felt quite different. At the name of Aslan, each one of the children felt something jump inside. Peter felt suddenly brave and adventurous. Susan felt as if some delicious smell or some delightful strain of music had just floated by her. And Lucy got the feeling you have when you wake up in the morning and realize that it's the beginning of the holidays or the beginning of summer. The children learn and intuitively understand that Aslan is no ordinary lion. And according to Mr. Beaver, he is the lion, the great lion. He's the king. 
He's the Lord of the whole wood. <laughs> and the son, get this, of the emperor, the great emperor, beyond the sea. And indeed, when the children actually do meet the Lord and God over all Narnia, they utterly adore him. <laughs> and it's easy to understand why. I mean, Aslan is the very picture of love. Throughout all seven of Lewis's books, Aslan showers the children with warm affection. He protects them. He rescues them. He fights for them, teaches them, weeps with them, plays with them, kisses them, laughs with them, and even dies for them. It's easy to love Aslan. And everyone in Narnia does. Well, not everyone. We'll talk about that in a minute. But at this point, you may be saying, oh, okay, I see where you're going, Tim. Got it. You're telling me that Aslan is really God. You know what? Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> because that's a nice, that is a nice children's fantasy. But that's all it is. It's a fairy tale. It's wishful thinking. Because that God <laughs> doesn't exist in my life. The, the God that's been shown to me is nothing like Aslan. And I understand. Your image of God may be nothing like the line of Narnia. You may see God as anything but warm and loving. In fact, you may see God as highly demanding, <laughs> strict, judgmental. Yeah, he's the Lord, but he's the Lord who lords it over all of us, providing nothing but a list of arcane rules and then kind of abandoning us to fend for ourselves. In a world that is perpetually winter, very cold, very heartless, and very alone. Maybe you blame God for, for troubles or tragedies in your life. If God is so good, then why did he let so-and-so die? Or why did he let this happen to me when I was a kid? Or why didn't he keep, you know, your family from divorce or, or bankruptcy or crippling disease or the list of indignities and wounds to which we're subjected, this side of the wardrobe goes on. You may think that either God doesn't care or he's not powerful enough to do anything about your troubles. Either way, he's not what you want in a God. As Thomas Williams wrote in his helpful little book, Knowing Aslan, he says, What you would like from God is what Aslan offers the Narnians. Real concern, tender care, unconditional love, and deep joy. So when you watch the movie... Or read one of the Narnian stories. It's little wonder if you sigh and wish your God were like that. I'm happy to tell you that these common ideas that so many of us have about God are in fact gross distortions. Even libelous. You've been misled. Because the real God of the Bible is like the fictional Aslan. Very much like Aslan. Or more accurately, Aslan is very much like the real God. Of God's story. In fact, one of the reasons C.S. Lewis created Aslan was to correct our image of God and show us the truth about him. Understand, Lewis understood negative feelings, even resentment towards God. He'd been there. He was actually a believer in his childhood, but he turned to atheism when his mother died before his 10th birthday, resenting God for destroying the happy life of his family. And in his 20 years as an atheist, he found modern religion a big turnoff. After his return to Christianity, Lewis created Aslan and wrote The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe to reveal the real truth about God without triggering the, all the defenses we raise against religion. So let's dig in here and see what Aslan reveals to us about God and this world that we find ourselves in. And I want to start off with, of all people, Edmund. Edmund. Now, Edmund suffers from your classic middle child syndrome. He is instantly dislikable. 
If everybody loves Raymond, everybody hates Edmund. He resents his older siblings, Peter and Susan. He lacks the cuteness and the innocence of Lucy, which is maybe why he felt insignificant and left out. Maybe that's why he became a pest, a bully, and eventually a traitor. When Edmund sees Lucy enter the magic wardrobe, he sneaks in after her and finds himself in Narnia. But instead of meeting a benevolent fawn, he's greeted by a character much more insidious and actually more alluring than any other. See, it's rumored that Aslan is returning to the country, that he's on the move, but he hasn't yet revealed himself. Instead, the white witch Jadis rules over this land, freezing it permanently under her spell. And as she prowls the woods in her reindeer-drawn sledge, acutely aware of an ancient prophecy that depicts her demise, when four human children, two sons of and two daughters of Eve, sit on the thrones of Narnia. And so when the white witch encounters Edmund in the forest, blindly stumbling through the snowy, Uh, the the forest, red flags just go off in her head. A son of Adam, a boy. Are there more? And to inquire more details and get it out out of Edmund about the specific threat, she tempts the boy with, does anyone remember? Turkish delight. Now, being from the States, you may not know what Turkish delight is in real life. This is not something that Lewis made up. But Turkish delight is a real and very popular British confection. It's extremely rich, impossibly sweet, like a honeyed version of the most addictive snack. You can't eat just one. And she acts all sweet and hospitable to Edmund. She warms a shivering boy in her fur wraps, giving him something hot to drink, and says, what would you like? And he says, Turkish delight, please. Providing a helping of Turkish delight for him to devour. This actually, I've got to be honest with you, was one of the shortcomings of the movie in my uh, uh, estimation. They downplayed the significance of the Turkish delight. It just kind of looked like the, you know, the, um, the witch gave Edmund like a Danish. <laughs> you know, he like eats it. He's like, oh, that was good entomans. But in the book, it's much more a significant exchange, revealing something important about Edmund's character. Let me read Lewis's words from chapter 4. Instantly, there appeared a round box tied with green silk ribbon, which, when opened, turned out to contain several pounds of the best Turkish delight. Each piece was sweet and light, and the more he ate, the more he wanted to eat. At, fa- at first, Edmund tried to remember that it's rude to speak with one's mouthful, but soon he forgot about this thought and thought only of trying to shovel down as much Turkish delight as he could, and the more he ate, the more he wanted to eat. At last, the Turkish delight was all finished, and Edmund was looking very hard at the empty box and wishing that she would ask him whether he would like some more. Turkish delight is the name of the chapter. It's sinfully delicious. And Edmund, as he gorges himself on this delectable taste of heaven, just clouds over. He loses all sense of his judgment. Things grow so foggy to them, he's actually taken in by the witch's sweets and her sweet talk. And he casually, as he's, as he's gorging his face, he kind of reveals to her, yeah, I got, the, I got a brother and I got two sisters. And the witch like does the math and realizes that this is her chance to kill the children and, and finally stamp out the threat to her kingdom once and for all. So she promises Edmund more Turkish delight if he will agree to bring his siblings to her. In fact, she says, you're such a sweet boy. I wouldn't mind adopting you. I have no children of my own. And I could make you king one day. Imagine being king over your siblings. Imagine that, Edmund. Peter serving you. Well, 
That thought warmed Edmund almost more than the delight. (laughs) And he does the unthinkable. Consumed with feeding his insatiable fleshly appetite. Enchanted by this idea of gaining power over other people. He sells out his brother and sisters. And makes a pact with the white witch to betray them. He'll do anything, anything for more TD. <laughs> and figures he stumbled upon a really good deal. I mean, think about this. I can, he can now lord it over his brother and sisters, have anything he desires, including all the candy he can jam in his mouth. But what he doesn't realize, though, is that there's a catch. As Lewis reveals, when the Turkish delight was all finished, Edmund was looking very hard at the empty box and wishing that she would ask him whether he'd like some more. But probably the queen knew quite well what he was thinking. For she knew, though Edmund did not, that this was enchanted Turkish delight, and that anyone who had once tasted it would want more and more of it, and would even, if they were allowed, go on eating until they killed themselves. That likely wouldn't have mattered to Edmund either. Because all he can think about is feeding his flesh and gaining the power over others that he longs for. So as soon as the rest of the children enter Narnia, Edmund tries to steer them towards the witch's castle. But the beavers help them escape, but not Edmund. And he abandons the rest of his family, sets out on his own, and sneaks off to find the witch, intent on betraying the others, including Aslan. All so he can feed his craving that is out of control. Like I said, it's easy to dislike Ed. Everybody hates Edmund. Yet, we all tend to be like Edmund at times on some level, don't we? As Williams describes it, with it's an all-about-me mindset that drives us to satisfy cravings we can't resist, even when they become destructive and deadly. No doubt you've experienced it firsthand. Um, perhaps at first you used your credit card just to buy a few things you'd always wanted, especially at Christmas, right? But after maxing out three cards, you still can't stop spending Or maybe you've tried every fad diet that comes along, but you stick with each one for hardly a week before a a binge balloons your weight again. Maybe you've tried to quit smoking many times, but each time you start it up again after only a few days. Or maybe you thought you could quit drinking, but even after losing your job or losing a spouse, you still reach for it. Or let's sanitize it. Maybe you're a workaholic. who's vowed to spend more time with your family. That's what I'm going to do for 2006, more family time. But soon your job sucks you back into endless nights at the office. Or maybe it's porn. You felt convicted and strengthened when we highlighted it here at church for a few weeks. But you know what? Now you're back to your old viewing habits. You know the problem firsthand. It's a condition all of us share. We are all like Edmund, loaded with weaknesses that we can't handle. So vulnerable to our cravings. As the Apostle Paul describes it in Ephesians 2, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Cravings. See, unlike the first humans that God created, we are no longer in control of our desires. Whether it's overeating, overdrinking, overspending, overdoing anything, at times we're apt to sell out what's most dear to us. Our relationship with a family or friends, our relationship with God himself, to indulge in what we want. 
Go talk with the addict who can't rightfully explain why he would ever betray his wife for images on a screen. Or talk with the shopaholic who can't explain why she'd shipwreck her family financially with constant purchases. They give her a fleeting hit of pleasure, but the next morning, what have I done? We give in to greed. We give in to pride. And we choose selfishness. To hell with how this affects everyone else. They don't look out for me, and I deserve a little pleasure. And to hell with how this affects my friendship with God. Aslan who? That's actually an interesting little side note in the original book. Whereas the three other children hear Aslan's name, and they're filled with wonderful feelings, Edmund has quite the opposite reaction. It says, at the name of Aslan, Edmund felt a sensation of mysterious horror. That's actually the normal default reaction of a sinner towards their savior. That's what Edmund is. He's... He's more than a pest. He's more than a bully. He's actually more than a traitor. He's a sinner. And so are we, according to God's story. What's a sinner? A sinner is anyone who rejects God and turns to oneself as their own authority. That's rebellion. And every son of Adam and every daughter of Eve has done it. No exceptions. Adam and Eve chose the apple over God. Edmund chose Turkish delight. You and I choose fill in the blank. The Bible tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In God's story, the scripture, when Adam and Eve sinned, ate that forbidden fruit, they took the entire human race down with them. And so all subsequent sons of Adam and daughters of Eve inherited this desire to rebel against authority, to have our cravings satisfied and to do only what we want to do and please only ourselves. I mean, you've seen the symptoms. You know people who can't hold the job because they can't stand being told what to do. You know others who can't stay in a marriage because they can't give up uh, their own wants for the sake of someone else. Maybe you've got teenagers who long for the day when they can get out on their own, out from under your thumb, and do whatever they want. Don't you sometimes feel that way yourself? Be honest. Don't you sometimes chafe at having to do what you ought to do? instead of what you want, at having a boss control your life 40 hours a week, and a wife, husband, or kids invading your space the rest of the time, you're not alone. We all resist authority, and we all want to please ourselves, to have what we want when we want it. We are like Adam and Eve and Edmund, rebels wanting no one to tell us what to do, And filled with an almost irresistible craving to please ourselves at all costs. Turkish delight. What's yours? It's easy to dump on Edmund. But you actually feel compassion for him. And pity for ourselves. When you realize what his sin was about to cost him. For when Edmund partook of the witch's fare. He entered into a compact with her. So binding. So blinding that he severed his obligations to the true king as well as his brother and sisters. He had, in effect, sold his soul. Betrayal of kin, treachery of king. And this is what doomed Edmund for the gallows. See, there's a deep magic in Narnia. At least, that's what the white witch calls it. And as she prepares to cut Edmund's throat once he's no longer of use to her, we see the tragic fruits of a life of Turkish delight. (laughs) Yet in Lewis's story, Edmund is rescued, actually, 
at the last minute by Aslan's followers. This selfish little boy is brought back to the king's camp. And Aslan and him have this long talk. And we see something new in Edmund. Humility, remorse. And he actually apologizes to his brother and his sisters for his betrayal. And it's at that moment when all actually seems forgiven in Narnia that the white witch appears in the camp, announcing her claims on Edmund and declaring her right to take his life. I'll read exactly from chapter 13. You have a traitor there, Aslan, said the witch. Of course, everyone present knew that she meant Edmund. Well, said Aslan, his offense was not against you. Have you forgotten the deep magic, asked the witch. Let us say I have forgotten it, answered Aslan gravely. Tell us of this deep magic. Tell you, said the witch, her voice suddenly growing shriller. Tell you what's written on the very table of stone which stands beside us. Tell you what's engraved on the scepter of the emperor beyond the sea, your father. You at least know the magic which the emperor put into Narnia at the very beginning. You know that every traitor belongs to me as my lawful prey, and that for every treachery, I have a right to kill. Of course, Edmund's siblings protest, but Aslan affirms the witch's right to take their brother's life. It's the ancient deep magic from the dawn of time that decrees all rebels in Narnia, be turned over to her and forfeit their life. On our side of the wardrobe, our world has a law exactly like Narnia's deep magic. Romans 6.23 declares the wages of sin simply is death. Just as in Narnia, the law that governs our world is that all traitors, all sinners, are to be given over to the evil one for destruction. And this immutable law of the universe means more than just our our physical death, okay? Sinners, those who defy God's authority and reject him, are doomed to remain in spiritual death, forever separated from the king. That's the doom we've inherited from our first parents. As sons of Adam, as daughters of Eve, we also are separated, disconnected from God. We thought we could take control of our own lives, but with God out of the picture, our desires took control of us spun us out of control, and there's no stopping us short of destruction. If you go back to that passage in Ephesians 2 that we first looked at, we're told, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live, when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us, also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. We were by nature objects of wrath. That is, there's another side of God's character that balances out his love. Yes, God is loving, but he is also just. And the eternal law of God's justice demands payment for our treachery, for our sin, for the way we've disobeyed him and betrayed others. And so now by our very nature as sinners, as rebels like Edmund, we are by nature objects of wrath. 
The Bible actually calls this the law, capital L. Lewis calls it the deep magic before the dawn of time. So, like Edmund, we are loved on one hand and also doomed. The pact we've made with evil and disobedience is not so easily undone. It's not just, hey, I'm sorry for that, all's forgiven. The enemy of our souls, the devil, has a claim on each of our lives. It's a touching scene, um, but in the book, the children and Aslan's followers stand up actually for Edmund and defy the white witch to come and claim Edmund, and they're going to fight her off, but she knows her rights. She writes, she says, fool, said the witch, with a savage smile that was almost a snarl. Do you really think your master can rob me of my rights by mere force? (laughs) He knows the deep magic better than that. He knows that unless I have blood, as the law says... All Narnia will be overturned and perish in fire and water. It is very true, said Aslan. I do not deny it. In our world, folks, this side of the wardrobe, it's as if God is caught in a conundrum. On the one hand, he gladly welcomes any lost child, no matter what they've done, he is merciful and desires their safe return. And on the other hand, His perfect justice demands that our treachery be paid for. Paid for in blood. The enemy has a claim on us. And that's what the law says in both Narnia and here on earth in God's economy. As Hebrews 9.22 puts it plainly. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. This law goes back far beyond the dawn of our present day. To the Old Testament times, when the law of the ancient Israelites established a need for a blood sacrifice to atone for one's sins. The only way for treachery to be forgiven, to neutralize its deadly consequences, was for a spotless, flawless animal to be sacrificed. To spill its blood as the way to fulfill the eternal requirements of God's justice. And so the entire Old Testament sacrificial system was established on this. A fresh, fresh firstborn lamb, a spotless dove, would spill its blood. But we're not in the Old Testament any longer. We're on the other side of that wardrobe. We're in the New Testament. <laughs> and a blood sacrifice must be made to fulfill the deep magic. And so you're left with a question at that moment. What, what can be done for Edmund? Or what can be done for me? This is a climactic moment in Lewis's tale. And it is in our story as well. Aslan summons the white witch to a private conversation. And all of the creatures anxiously watch and wait as Edmund's fate is decided between the two rulers. And finally, Aslan emerges and declares, I've settled the matter. She has renounced the claim on your brother's blood. And Peter, Susan, Lucy, and the rest of Aslan's followers celebrate. They they can't believe their good fortune. Edmund has been spared. But how? I mean, how did Aslan arrange this without violating his father's, the emperor's, deep magic, the law of his justice? Well, as the witch rides off, she gives us a hint, asking Aslan if he, you really intend to keep your promise? And you're like, promise? What, what, what promise? And if you remember, the movie captures it, and the book says that Aslan stood there just stone-faced, with a look of sadness and of gravity washing over his countenance. Later that night, 
Lucy and Susan are, are woken up by the, the shadow and rustling of the great lion walking slowly away from the camp into the woods and in the direction of the stone table. The girls follow him into the shadows and, and notice that he's changing his demeanor and gait and countenance. And, and he's starting to walk very slowly, head kind of hung. And when he discovers the girls following him, he welcomes their company. And as they draw close to him, his head hangs and the mighty cat kind of stumbles and actually gives this low moan. It's totally uncharacteristic for this majestic, powerful lion. And when the girls ask Aslan what's wrong, he simply replies, I am sad and lonely. And as they approach the edge of the hill where the stone table stands, Aslan admonishes them, O children, here you must stop. Leave me to go on alone. And whatever happens, do not let yourselves be seen. Farewell. And as Lucy and Susan crouch in the bushes to watch Aslan voluntarily climb that hill, they see something terrible, something that no child should ever see. I'll just read it to you directly from the book. A great crowd of people were standing all around the stone table. And though the moon was shining, many of them carried torches, which burned with evil-looking red flames and black smoke. But such people, ogres with monstrous teeth and wolves and bull-headed men, spirits of evil trees and poisonous plants, and other creatures whom I won't describe because if I did, the grown-ups would probably not let you read this book. <laughs> Cruels and hags and incubuses, wraiths, horrors, sprites, orkneys, woozes, ettins. In fact, here were all those who were on the witch's side and whom the wolf had summoned at her command. And right in the middle, standing by the table, was the witch herself. A howl and a gibber of dismay went up from the creatures when they first saw the great lion pacing towards them. And for a moment, even the witch herself seemed to be struck with fear. Then she recovered herself and gave a wild, fierce laugh. The fool, she cried. The fool has come. Bind him fast. Lucy and Susan held their breaths, waiting for Aslan's roar and his spring upon his enemies. But it never came. Four hags, grinning and leering, yet also at first hanging back and half afraid of what they had to do, had approached him. Bind him, I say, repeated the white witch. The hags made a dart at him and shrieked with triumph when they found that he made no resistance at all. Then others, evil dwarves and apes, rushed in to help them, and between them they rolled the huge cat, the lion over on his back, and tied all his four paws together, shouting, and cheering as if they'd done something brave, though had the lion chosen, one of those paws could have been the death of them all. But he made no noise, even when the enemies, straining and tugging, pulled the cords so tight that they cut into his flesh. Then they began to drag him towards the stone table. Stop, said the witch. Let him first be shaved. Another roar of mean laughter went up from her followers as an ogre with a pair of shears came forward and squatted down by Aslan's head. Snip, 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 went the shears and masses of curling gold began to fall to the ground. Then the ogre stood back and the children watching from their hiding place could see the face of Aslan looking all small and different without its mane. The enemies also saw the difference. Why, he's only a great cat after all, cried one. Is, is, is that... What we were afraid of, said another. 
And they surged round Aslan, jeering at him, saying things like, Puss, puss, poor pussy. And how many mice have you caught today, cat? And would you like a saucer of milk, pussums? How, how can they, said Lucy, tears streaming down her cheeks. The brutes. For now that the first shock was over the shorn face of Aslan, he looked to her braver and more beautiful and more patient than ever. Muzzle him, said the witch. And even now, as they worked about his face, putting on the muzzle, one bite from his jaws would have cost two or three of them their hands. But he never moved. And this seemed to enrage all that rabble. Everyone was at him now. Those who'd been afraid to come near him, even when he was bound, began to find their courage. And for a few minutes, the two girls could not even see him. So thickly was he surrounded by the whole crowd of creatures, kicking him, hitting him, spitting on him, jeering at him. At last, the rabble had had enough of this. And they began to drag the bound and muzzled lion to the stone table, some pulling, some pushing. He was so huge that even when they got him there, it took all their efforts to hoist him onto the surface of it. And then there were more tying and tightening of cords. The cowards, sobbed Susan. Are they still afraid of him even now? When once Aslan had been tied, and tied so that he was really a mass of cords on the flat stone, a hush fell on the crowd. Four hags holding four torches stood at the corners of the table, and the witch bared her arms as she bared them the previous night when it had been Edmund instead of Aslan. And then she began to wet her knife. It looked to the children when the gleam of the torchlight fell on it as if the knife were made of stone, not of steel, and it was of a strange and evil shape. And at last she drew near. She stood by Aslan's head. Her face was working and twitching with passion, but his looked up at the sky, still quiet, neither angry nor afraid, but a little sad. Then, just before she gave the blow, she stooped down and said in a quivering voice, And now, who has won? Fool, did you think that by all this you would save the human traitor? Now I will kill you instead of him as our pact was, and so the deep magic will be appeased. But when you are dead, what will prevent me from killing him as well? And who will take him out of my hand then? Understand that you have given me Narnia forever. You've lost your own life, and you have not saved his In that knowledge, despair and die. The children did not see the actual moment of the killing. They couldn't bear to look and covered their eyes. On this side of the wardrobe, in our story, the story of you, the story of me. When the king's son willingly stepped between the people he loved and the punishment we deserved, he was similarly jeered, tortured, and ultimately murdered. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ of Nazareth is the historical event on which all of the Bible, all of human history turns. 
Because if we're to believe that what happened on a hillside in ancient Israel 2,000 years ago, if we travel back in time to not the stone table, but to Golgotha, the place of the skull, the hill on which Jesus Christ was nailed to a Roman cross and crucified in our place. If we're to believe the significant of that event is true, in the Narnian sense of true, then we are confessing that God died that day. That he voluntarily gave his son's life for ours. Willingly gave up his power and sacrificed his body, allowing the forces of evil to shed his blood in our place. Like Lewis's tale, the scriptures describe in detail the brutality and cruelty of that moment of time in which the king of kings allowed himself to be debased and destroyed in our stead. Like Aslan When Jesus voluntarily gave himself over to his enemies, they mocked and spit on him and beat him savagely. They didn't cut his hair, but they did put a crown of thorns on his head. And they didn't use a stone dagger, but they did pierce Christ's hands and feet with nails, his side with a spear. And all this When with a flick of his divine power, his enemies would have been routed. But not a word from Aslan. And not a word from Christ. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. Like a sheep before his shearers, he was silent. The prophet Isaiah tells us. And it was finished. The deep magic appeased the life of the emperor's son for ours. An arrangement was made. And his death won our freedom. And this, my friends, is the ultimate act of love. The Bible describes it this way. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died For us. Aslan gave his life out of love for Edmund, and Christ gave his life out of love for you and me. As sons of Adam, daughters of Eve, all of us rebels deserve death. We've failed to be what God created us to be. But God was in love with us, and the thought of spending eternity without us was more than he could bear. And in fact, he said, I'm going after them. It doesn't matter what they've done or said. I love them too much to let them go. Whatever it takes, I'm going to get them back. And whatever it takes meant death. To save us, God sent his only son, Jesus, to die in our place. Nailed to a Roman executioner's device, it didn't deter Jesus Christ for a moment. He loved us that much. And this is the deeper magic called God's grace. For God created a way for his wrath and justice to be satisfied. And that's through the sacrifice of Jesus. We looked at Ephesians 2, 3. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. Well, the flip side of it in verses 4 and 5, I'll go read this way. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace You have been saved. It is called grace. 
the unmerited favor of God towards those who have rebelled against him. This is the deeper magic. The love by which you and I are forgiven, freed from guilt and punishment, and restored to friendship with God. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, says Romans 3.23, but verses 24 and 25 say, and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus, the second chance he offers us. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in what? His blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice. Because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time. So as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Get at this? God presented Jesus. The emperor presented his son as a sacrifice of atonement. Atonement. Think of at-one-ment. Bringing us into at-one-ment. Back into unity, into relationship. Into loving friendship as his children. Through faith in his blood. It's the blood of Jesus that pays for our sins. Why did God do this? To demonstrate his justice. So as to be just, yes, and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. God is both just and loving. And he fulfilled his own law with the sacrifice of his only son for us. Colossians 1.13 says, For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us out into the kingdom of the son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And so we learn that something truly magic happened that day at the stone table. Something truly divine happened that day and the cross in ancient Palestine 2,000 years ago. We were loved. Loved extravagantly. Loved fully. We were ransomed, set free to truly live. As Tom Williams writes, now this is very good news. <laughs> the best possible news. Because without Jesus' death to pay the price for our rebellion and forgive us for it, we would have no escape from the doom of the law, that deep magic that says rebels against God deserve eternal death. In fact, this news, I understand, may seem too good to be true (laughs) to some of you tonight. I mean, think, you know, let's be real. When a telemarketing call interrupts your dinner to offer a free vacation trip to Cancun, you know there's a catch. Strings are attached somewhere ready to entangle you in a lifetime of payment. So you say, no thanks, hang up. Nothing is free. So when you hear that God died to free you from death, you may wonder, okay, what's the catch? There is no catch. Or if there is, it's God who was caught by his own love. What he did for us has no strings attached. He takes the hit and forgives our sins. You may have trouble believing in God's free offer because you think you've sinned beyond what he can forgive. You're like, well, he may forgive others, but he can never forgive me for what I've done. Maybe you've done some pretty bad things. Maybe you've wounded people, used people, driven people away, or, or worse. Maybe, maybe you hide a shameful habit, a lifestyle secret, or you've committed a deed so terrible you can't even talk about it. Maybe you've even caused someone's death or ruin. You can't forgive yourself. How can God possibly forgive you? 
So I'll ask you about the characters in God's story. Have you done worse than Jesus' friends? His close friend and disciple Peter? (laughs) They worked together side by side for three years, and yet when Jesus was arrested and dragged to judgment, Peter abandoned him, denying that he even knew Jesus. Not once, but three times for good measure in case I stuttered. No, no, no. Don't know him. Have you done worse than Paul of Tarsus? (laughs) He made a career of persecuting and executing innocent Christians. Have you done worse than King David, who voyeuristically ogled a naked woman bathing, sneaked her into his chamber, committed adultery with her, and when she became pregnant, has her husband killed so he can marry her to cover it up as sin? Yet God died for each of those world-class sinners. Because those characters in his story accepted the free gift of forgiveness. It's grace. You see, scripture tells us where sin increased, grace increased all the more. In other words, where the magic is deep, there is deeper magic still. With Christ's death, the vilest offender has cause for celebration. And this is what the girls discover the morning after Aslan is sacrificed. After the witch executes him, Susan and Lucy stay by his body weeping, and as morning breaks, they walk about kind of to keep warm. And suddenly, things begin to tremor, and the stone table that Aslan was killed upon shakes and rumbles and splits in two. And they turn around to see him alive, larger, more glorious than ever, full head of hair. And the way God's story tells it is that when Jesus died, the earth shook and the curtain in the temple tore in two. And three mornings later, Jesus Christ of Nazareth was resurrected, appearing fully alive to the women visiting his tomb. You see, on the other side of the deep magic, there's a magic deeper still. It's called resurrection. In chapter 15, Susan says, but what does it all mean when she got her wits about herself? It means, said Aslan, that though the witch knew the deep magic, there is a magic deeper still which she did not know. Her knowledge goes back only to the dawn of time. But if she could have looked to a little further back into the stillness and the darkness before time dawned, she would have read there a different incantation. She would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backward. Do you see? It's the evil one who was deceived at the stone table, at the cross of Christ. Not only was the Lion of Judah the perfect, sinless sacrifice on our behalf, the the willing victim who committed no treachery killed in a traitor's stead, but something else happened when Christ was raised to life three days later. Christ died, yes, but more. He took death down with him. And for those of us who have put our faith in him, we, his followers, will actually not know spiritual death but experience life forever in his eternal kingdom. As 1 Corinthians declares, death has been swallowed up in victory. And that 
my friends, is cause for celebration. And that's what Aslan and the children do. One of my favorite passages in the entire Narnia series is right after they discover Aslan alive. And the lion says, oh children, I feel my strength coming back to me. Children, catch me if you can. He stood for a second, his eyes very bright, his limbs quivering, lashing himself with his tail. And then he made a leap high over their heads and landed on the other side of the table, laughing. Though she didn't know why, Lucy scrambled over it to reach him. Aslan leaped again, and a mad chase began. Round and round the hilltop he led them, now hopelessly out of their reach, now letting them almost catch his tail, now diving between them, now tossing them in the air with his huge and beautifully velveted paws and catching them again. And now stopping unexpectedly so that all three of them rolled over together in a happy, laughing heap of fur and arms and legs. It was such a romp as no one has ever had except in Narnia. And whether it was more like playing with a thunderstorm or playing with a kitten, Lucy could never make up her mind. The last thing anyone expects from the great line, after the tragedy of execution and the triumph of resurrection, is cavorting in the grass with a couple of kids. We expect them to display majesty, you know, exultation, power, and perhaps joy, writes Williams, but surely a noble, high-minded joy, not a romp. But Aslan doesn't hold back. He romps with extravagant joy, and there's good reason for it. Just as Aslan came back from the dead, three days after his crucifixion, Jesus burst from the tomb, alive, healthier than ever to hundreds of witnesses. And his resurrection shows us the power of evil and death is broken. The kingdom has come. It's breaking in. It shows us our God is stronger than death itself. He's defeated it. His resurrection also shows us, and the New Testament promises, that we too will be resurrected after we die. All our flaws will be corrected. We will be beautiful and perfect, both in body and soul. No more pain or death. We will be like true sons and daughters of Adam and Eve in Eden. Our companionship with God will be restored. No more gap. Ever since our parents sinned, God's whole purpose with us has been restoration. That's the story. He doesn't intend to let Satan ruin his good creation, and he will put all of it, including you and me, back like he intended at the beginning. Better. That's cause for enormous joy. Good cause for a romp. Joy is the serious business of heaven. C.S. Lewis wrote elsewhere. Joy is what God is all about. And Aslam's romp with the kids shows God's intention for all of us. Jesus died so that we could forever escape the misery Satan inflicted and experience the joy God intended. Wild, extravagant joy. So how about you? What do you make of these stories? Of this grand story that God has written you into? Yeah, each of us is a character. And at the center of our life story is a loving and just God who is the hero we've privately hoped for our whole lives. That's the magic of Narnia. That in a very real way is a powerful hyperlink to the very truth of God in Scripture. 
If you know and love Aslan in fantasy, it is so that you may know Jesus, the true King of kings and Lord of lords, in reality. Going back to our original question, is it possible that God is as good as Aslan appears in this fairy tale? How about reversing that? Is it just possible that God is even better than the lion we admire? That in the person of Jesus Christ, the lion and the lamb spoken of in scriptures, we do have a supremely good and loving king to put our trust in. This is where it takes the the simple trust of a child to believe that Jesus has come for you. He is our savior. He's come to rescue us. And with his shedding of his blood has taken down the forces of evil, death, and destruction through the powerful magic of God's grace. It will bring us into his kingdom to rule and reign with him forever and ever. Could you love and trust a God who did that for you? In May of 1955, the mother of a nine-year-old boy named Lawrence wrote to C.S. Lewis, explaining that her young son was concerned that he loved Aslan more than he loved Jesus. Ten days later, Much to her delighted surprise, she received a handwritten note from Lewis that ended with this insight. Lawrence can't really love Aslan more than Jesus, even if he feels that's what he is doing. For the things he loves Aslan for doing or saying are simply things that Jesus really did and said. So that when Lawrence thinks he is loving Aslan, he is really loving Jesus and perhaps loving him more than he ever did before. It's a beautiful thing to have the faith of a child. It's the most natural thing in the world to be loved and love in return. Have you opened that door? Have you entered into the love that God has for you in his son Jesus? Have you accepted his forgiveness, received his grace, and been filled with his joy? If not, that's something you can do even tonight as we bow our heads to pray together. Let's let's do that, in fact. God knocks on the door of your heart. And if you're ready to open yourself to him tonight, perhaps for the first time, you can simply pray along with me. You might pray, um, dear Jesus, thank you so much for loving me. Thank you for dying in my place. Thank you for forgiving my sins, offering me a life of peace, free from guilt and filled with joy. I open my heart for you to come in. I commit my life to you. Give me your spirit to make me all you created me to be so that my life may reflect your nature. I pray this prayer through the name of your loving son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's keep our heads bowed. If that was a prayer you prayed tonight for the first time, rest assured God heard you. And there's more. There's a journey ahead. And you have brothers and sisters who want to come alongside and help you in the days to come. So if you prayed that, I want to invite you to come up front after the service. Just so I could personally meet you, just encourage you and welcome you to the family.